Welcome to Moroccan American, a podcast about Morocco and the United States. These two countries have maintained a consistent and long-term friendship over centuries, even while their common interests have not always perfectly aligned. What started this relationship and what has sustained it? Diving into the fields of diplomacy, literature, trade, and art, in this podcast, we'll dissect different parts of the Moroccan-American friendship and try to better understand this fascinating, complex, and close relationship. I'm your host, Graham Cornwell. Thanks for joining us. In the summer of 1527, an expedition of approximately 600 men and women set off from Spain to explore what is now the U.S. coast of the Gulf of Mexico and to claim it for the Spanish crown. Among this group was a Moroccan slave by the name of Estebanico from the city of Azamor just south of Casablanca on Morocco's Atlantic coast. The Narvaez expedition, as it's now known, was an unmitigated disaster. Death, disease, infighting, along with the widespread destruction of the Native American populations they encountered. Only four people survived, appearing nine years later in northwestern Mexico after an incredible journey that took them across the Mississippi River and across the whole of what is now Texas. Of course, one of these survivors was Estebanico. In our first episode, we welcome author Leila Lalami to talk about the Moore's account, her historical reimagining of the extraordinary life and travels of Estebanico through what is now the southern United States and Mexico. The Moore's account won the American Book Award and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, it was really a series of uh, fortunate events uh, I, a few years ago. Oh, gosh, uh, this was in the fall of 2009. I was assigned a book uh, to review by The Nation magazine. The Nation is the longest continuously running publication mm-hmm. uh, in in the United States. And so I was writing for their uh, literary section and uh, my editor there assigned me a polemic on Muslim immigration to Europe uh, to review. And in the process of doing research for that book, I came across a completely different book called We Are All Moors, uh, which is actually by a Moroccan scholar named Anwar Majid. Who teaches at the, yeah, who teaches at the University of New England, I believe. And about halfway through the book, uh, Professor Majid mentions this enslaved man who, from Azamor, who was said to be the first black explorer of North America and the, in what is now the, the, the United States. And I remember being extremely intrigued, uh, but of course I had a book review to finish. So I went and I did that and then later decided to find out more about him. And that's what brought me to yet another book called Chronicle of the Narvez Expedition by Cabeza de Vaca. That is a very short book in the Penguin Classic series. And it basically details what happened to a Spanish expedition that left uh, Spain, uh, the port of San Luca de Barrameda in Spain in 1527, and landed in Florida in April 1528 with the goal of claiming that territory 
for the Spanish crown, um, except that this expedition was ill-fated almost from the beginning and everything that could go wrong essentially did. And one of the few survivors was Cabeza de Vaca, obviously the person who wrote that account, um, two other noblemen and this enslaved man from Morocco. And as I, you know, read the book immediately, you know, I had so many questions and felt so um, intrigued and inspired by the story that I thought, you know, it would be really interesting to read about this guy and this expedition from his perspective, except that Cabeza de Vaca's book really didn't give much detail about him. Um, so, so in, in the book, he is mentioned a handful of times. Sometimes he's described by the name that the Spaniards had given him, his slave name. So that's Estevanico, sometimes Esteban. Um, and sometimes he's, uh, referred to as the slave or sometimes as the black man. Uh, and at the very end of the book, Cabeza de Vaca has like a two line biography about him. And all it says is that he was born in Azamor, that he was an Arabic speaking black man. Uh, and that was it. And that's what I had to go on. And I, but, I, you know, just reading this, I was just completely just enthralled by the story uh, for different reasons. Um, and I thought it might make a really interesting novel. Uh, and so that, that was in the fall of 2009. So, <laughs> so it took, it took a few years to publish the book. It came out in 2014. So it took about five years. Yeah. So why did you think, why did this feel like an important story to share? Well, so I had sort of the same reaction that you did. So you as an American going to Azamor and seeing these murals of this man and wondering, well, who is that guy? I had sort of the reverse reaction, which is that as a Moroccan reading this book and finding out that this guy had been in North America, you know, four centuries earlier or five centuries earlier, um, and that he was said to be this this first black explorer in North America. It just seemed such a bizarre and unusual thing. And I just got curious about him as a Moroccan, just as a student of history and a student of, of Morocco. But um, more than that, what really drew me as a, as, a, as a writer to that story is the fact that it is a story of transformation. So the Spaniards arrive. You have to imagine what that scene on the beach in Florida uh, on Easter Sunday in 1528 must have looked like as they are, you know, disembarking. They've arrived on five ships. They have hundreds of horses and pigs and, you know, chickens. And they have 600 men, women and children. Um, they're slowly sh- shuttling everybody onto the beach. Um, they are so, these Spaniards are so, um, convinced of their own technological and cultural and religious superiority that it never occurs to them that they're going to be anything but conquerors 
um, in that territory. And what happens during, you know, as Cabeza de Vaca reveals in his chronicle, is that really the tables are turned. And these people who have come to conquer end up being conquered. So it's really a story of, it's a reversal of fortune, but it's also a story of transformation because Estebanico slash Mustafa, as he's known in my book, arrives as kind of an interloper and slowly is essentially transformed into a figure of the new world, somebody who is remaking himself in America. He's basically fashioning a new identity for himself um, based on his experience as a Moroccan in Morocco, but also with his uh, with the Portuguese slave traders and then later with the Spanish masters and eventually with the indigenous people with whom he lives. So it's just a story of transformation. It's a story of adventure, of course, because you have, you know, it's a swashbuckling adventure and, you know, you're kind of wandering into the interior of Florida, not knowing what's going to happen next. So if, if a character is crossing a swamp and an alligator comes out, that's, you know, that's, that's adventure. Um, and lastly, I think it's a, it's a story of, of the search for freedom because this person arrives enslaved, uh, to the Spaniards and the differences between them, the differences between master and slave are not going to um, matter as much once the expedition goes inland in search for what they're really after, namely gold. Because once they're inland and they start, they're sort of lost, those differences don't matter because what matters is survival. They have to survive. They are in an unfamiliar environment. They have to forage for, you know, for food. And they don't know what plants are poisonous and what plants are safe. They don't know whether they're going to see an alligator or some other animal that they've never met before. It's a completely alien environment to them. And in that alien environment, the differences between Spaniard and Moroccan, between slave and master, between conqueror even and conqueror, don't matter. All that matters is are you going to be, are you going to be able to survive to the next day? And I think that, you know, that was another thing that drew me to the book. You know, it's just this constant struggle for survival, for freedom. The fact that it's a story of transformation, a story of adventure. Uh, and it's just a great good yarn. And I thought it would be, <laughs> I thought it would be really quite interesting to tell it from the perspective of the one the one survivor whose testimony was never collected in the historical record. Because when the survivors, after having wandered through North America for the better part of a decade, uh, are found and are brought to Mexico City, um, they are asked to provide very official testimonies of, of right. what they've seen because, you know, they, you know, in the 16th century, uh, that kind of information, the kind of information that they had constituted really valuable intelligence for the Spanish crown. They wanted to know, you know, what indigenous tribes uh, there were in North America, what their habits were, what the territory, what the landscape looked like. All of that was very valuable information. And so they needed to to hear from the survivors about it. And also, you know, the, the expedition involved private investments. Like oftentimes these investigations were 
uh, not paid for by the crown. They were they were essentially sponsored by the crown in the sense that the crown made sure that the territory was was claimed in its name, that the royal fifth, 20% of whatever, you know, riches were were found were reserved for the king. But beyond that, all of that was private investments. And so these people who had invested money in this expedition needed to know what happened to their investments. So for all these reasons, it was important to collect an official testimony of what happened. And, you know, the the the, the four survivors of this expedition uh, were deposed, but in fact, only three had their testimony added to the historical record. Uh, Cabeza de Vaca, Dorantes, who is uh, Estevanico's owner, and another gentleman, uh, Alonso del Castillo Maldonado. Um, so those three, you know, they were heard, but, but because he was a slave, Mustafa slash Estebanico was really never added to the historical record. We don't really know what his perspective on this whole adventure was like. And so that's really where the novel from a sort of a craft perspective, from a narrative perspective really began because it was an opportunity to, to, for me to tell this story from an unusual perspective. And that's what really drew me to it. In terms of the historical research, I mean, I noticed in, at the end of the book, um, in, in the acknowledgements, you, you nod to Ibn Battuta. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious first, just how you kind of pulled together all the historical research, um, that made this story plausible, um, mm-hmm. given that, you know, it is, it's a work of fiction, mm-hmm. but then more specifically, how Ibn Battuta, uh, influences your book. Uh, he, uh, so Ibn Battuta had, had a great role, uh, for me uh, to play, uh, in the writing of this book. And by the way, actually, the last time I was in Tangier, I went to visit his grave. I don't know if you've been there. There's yeah. like this marker and it's like we were laboring up the hill and it was cold and windy. You know how it gets in Tangier in December. Oh my God. And, <laughs> and we went up there. So it was really incredible to, to be able to visit that spot. Um, but anyway, um, even Batuta's writing was uh, crucially relevant for me in the writing of this book because when I was trying to come up with a particular style for how to write the novel, like the kind of voice uh, to, to use for the novel, I realized that one of the biggest... Um, obstacles was was really putting myself in the mind uh, and in the perspective of someone from the 16th century so not only is it you know trying to write from the perspective of a man <laughs> um but also to write from the perspective of a man from several centuries before um and to try and and ask myself if i'm going to write from this per- perspective what are some things that might stand out to me if I arrived in a new world. And so in order to really kind of immerse myself in, in a, a contemporaneous perspective, I sought out, you know, manuscripts and books from the 16th century from, you know, people, you know, Moroccans essentially. And so I thought, oh, well, let me look at what in Batuta wrote because it's roughly the same time. This is contemporaneous. So I read his travelogue. I read 
what he wrote. And I, you know, oftentimes was very amused by the kinds of things that stood out to him, you know, particularly I remember there was, uh, I forget where he was. Um, I, it was somewhere in the Muslim world, but it was an island, an island territories. Maybe it was Zanzibar or someplace like that. I forget. Um, and so he was commenting on the women's immodest. <laughs> immodest dress uh, that seemed very unusual to him because it was not proper where he was from in, in North Africa. So, um, but he says, but, but they are very devout people. So it was, it was very amusing, you know, the kind of reactions that he had. And so, so I read him for that. I wanted to kind of get inspiration about kind of the sort of things that a 16th century uh, Arab traveler, specifically a Moroccan traveler might notice. Uh, and also for the style, because it is, you know, it's, it's, he writes it as a travelogue and, and, you know, this being, my book being the story of this expedition and the story of Mustafa's life, there is a lot of like journeying through a territory. So in a sense, it is a travelogue as well. And I also sought out the work of Hassan al-Wazan, also known, also known as, uh, Leo Africanus, because, um, again, Roughly the same era, not exactly the same era, but roughly the same era. And he had written about Fez during the, uh, before the earthquake, uh, in the 16th century. So, you know, just looking at what these men had written, um, that lived at about the same time and looking at the style and the, the sort of cultural, um, details that stood out to them. So that is the role really that Ibn Battuta had. And, and then I had to kind of, use that um, and fold the research into it, which I'm happy to talk about if, if you like. Mm-hmm. And what about the research on America specifically? Uh, and yeah. And the, the different peoples, the geography. Yeah. So one of the, the, the great, um, like this was really just a stroke of luck, which is that in writing a historical novel, very rarely do you have, um, the chance to have a primary source, right? And I had a primary source, like essentially Cabeza de Vaca has gone through all of these places, presumably that he told us he went through, right? We know from Ibn Batuta that may not necessarily be the case, right? So, um, so I, you know, with Cabeza de Vaca's book, I was able to break it down into essentially an itinerary, you know, this is this is the date, this is the place, and basically go through in as in as as well as I could through the 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 roughly ten years that they spent in North America and started with that. But in a sense, I didn't even need to do that because a great number of scholars had spent time trying to uh dissect Cabeza de Vaca's narrative and break it down into like you know, like, a, like I said, an itinerary and try to guess like exactly what parts of the modern United States he might have visited. There were some people who were trying to recreate on foot his itinerary. I mean, there's like Cabeza de Vaca has been a figure of great um, interest among historians and anthropologists. So I actually had access to quite a bit of secondary material. Um to, 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 you know, for, for the research of the book. So I was pretty clear roughly where they were, you know, the, the, the dates, the places, 
um, where they were. Once I had that, then the question was then, you know, and I know what's happening, right? So you're like, okay, so you have the, the, the general story. The Spaniards arrive. Everything goes wrong, like starting with, you know, disease and, and, you know, encounters with, with, uh, indigenous tribes that didn't want them there and, you know, desertions and, and, and fights and cannibalism. And <laughs> it's all in the book. Um, so the question really became how to render it as a historical narrative rather than as history. Because when I read the nonfiction um, books, there, there are limitations because, like, for example, we know from some of the, the, the historians tell us that the, the Spaniards, the survivors were found near what is now El Paso in Texas. And if you go to El Paso, you can actually see that there are actually markers. There's like a statue of Cabeza de Vaca and all that. Oh, wow. Um, but that's again, like, you know, this is what his, you know, as a historian, you know, it's like you do your best. You, you, this is what we think happened, but you know, nobody was there <laughs> four centuries ago. So we can't be, you know, it might be a hundred miles east or it might be a hundred miles west. It's, you know, these are, these are the best guesses that people have for that. And, and, um, so, so, but with fiction, it's not nearly as, that is not nearly the point. Like the point is really, to create characters and to investigate their emotional lives and to see how people react when they're faced by these transformations or when they react when they're faced by somebody who looks different than them, by like the cultural other, you know, so there's like things that, that, that you can do in a novel that you couldn't do in a, in a book of historical nonfiction and, and vice versa, of course. So I was able to use that research. Um, and then I kind of, in a way, had to set it aside and start writing a novel and, you know, creating characters and giving them attributes that I have absolutely no reason to believe they had. Like, right. So one person is relatively, shall we say, greedy and another person is kind of like more of a, you know, sort of, you know, um, introverted and another one is extroverted. Like, you know, so I gave them attributes in order to, to create this novel and to make it exciting. And these attributes, we don't know if they had in real life. Like, I mean, there's, I have a rough idea what Capisa de Vaca was like because I actually read his narrative, but the others, you know, it's a little bit less so. So there's a lot of, there was room for invention on my part and for creativity on my part. Sticking kind of with the historical record, and this is a work of historical fiction, I want to ask you a, a hypothetical question. Um, and that is, if you could find more evidence in the historical record, or even if you could go, you know, if you could travel back in time, what is one thing you would really like to know about Estebanico? Oh, that is a really interesting question. Um, hmm. I don't think... There's so much that I would want to know, right? Like how the reality compares. I to think my there could be multiple answers. <laughs> it doesn't have to be just one. Yeah. Um, I think what I would really love to know is how this man ended up in a Spanish expedition in the first place. Yeah. Because uh, at the time of his, uh, during his life, Morocco was not, um, did not have, um, 
a direct relationship with Spain, like the, the relationships that it had with Europeans at, in that particular, in those particular decades had to do with the trading posts that the Portuguese were building along the coasts in, in Africa. And so the city of Azamor, where he's from, uh, every year had to pay a tax to the Portuguese. It was under vassalage to the Portuguese. So the part that I, always very curious about is how he became an enslaved man. Nobody is born a slave, at least not in that era, because this predates the, the arrival of, uh, of African uh, enslaved people into the, the what is now the United States. So this we're talking about the early, you know, 16th century. And specifically, since the expedition that brought him to the U.S. was in 1527. So we're talking about much earlier than that. So, you know, how did he end up on that Spanish expedition? So the theory in my book is that he became enslaved as a result of the political situation in, in, in the political and uh, social situation in Azamor at that time. There had been a drought. There was a famine. Uh, there was an, a, an influx of refugees. So all of these things contributed to uh, an increase in enslavement. And, um, and and there is some evidence for that in, in the historical record. So but but like, does that mean that he was one of them? He was one of those slaves. The slaves that we know were taken from Asmore were taken to Portugal. So how did he end up in in that port in Spain? And how did he end up being the property of this Spanish gentleman? Um, someone of fairly high, uh, you know, like he, this guy, Dorantes, he was one of the captains of this uh, expedition. So he was in charge. He was one of the people who was in charge of, of the ships. He had his own ship that he was captaining. So that would be really what I would be curious. You know, how did he end up sure. sort of, you know, swept into this massive, you know, ex- expedition? I mean, I, th- I think the whole, the whole story in this also gets back to the Ibn Battuta connection or, or parallel. Um, but it does point to Morocco's position in the world and its connections in the world in the 16th century. You know, I think we, we think about this Atlantic world conquest as sort of a Europe, you know, across the ocean to the Americas. Um, but, but Morocco was intimately connected to Siberia in particular, but also to to England. Um, and, and even uh, obviously has such a long Atlantic coastline that would uh, absolutely have had these more of these interactions. You know, it makes me wonder, are there more Mustafa's, um, you know, out there that we just, that, that never materialize in the historical record in this way? Oh, I am certain of it. Um, in fact, when I was researching that novel, uh, I mentioned earlier Bernal Diaz's, uh, book, uh, Conquest of New Spain. And it was fascinating while reading that book, which, you know, it's, by the way, I should mention that the business of this, the sort of the imperial business can be quite, um, there's a lot of drudgery. So there's a like, like this happened and then this happened. So you kind of have to stick with the book, but, but, in it, you come across a number of figures that each would be deserving of a book uh, on them because they're all fascinating. So, for example, the, the 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 details that he has about the young Mexican woman who served as translator to Cortez um, and is later known as La Malinche, even though 
Cortez is the, actually the guy whose name is Maninche. But anyway, so, you know, there's so many figures like that in his book of people who um, essentially are getting swept up in in these uh, larger political events that hurt their own people, but they have their either they have their own agenda or they have been cast aside by their own culture. So this is the only place that they can fit. I mean, it's very interesting. There's a number of people like that and, and they existed in, in, in the Americas at the time. So I, I wouldn't doubt that there's others like him. It's just that we happen to know about this one. Um, I want to turn toward the setting and the geography. For mm-hmm. me, they, play a really powerful part of your story. Um, What was important for you to capture about the landscape of Southeastern, what's now the Southeastern United States and, um, and uh, parts of Mexico and and even the Southwest, but they cover so much territory. Yeah. It was a lot of territory. I think that was one of the challenges of writing this book up until I wrote the Moore's account landscape for me was something that existed in the background of scenes, right? And that's technically the purpose of landscape in sort of, in sort of creative writing, right? It's, it's something that is, is serves as like a background to what the characters are doing. The characters are in the foreground. But in a book like The Moore's Account, the, the setting is absolutely vital to the story because uh, the... First of all, it's a story of exploration. So you need to know what it is they're exploring and, and you know, what it looks like, right? Because you're building, you know, the, the world for, for the reader. Um, but also because the, the landscape matters a lot because this is a story of survival. So the characters really need to be able to survive in an unusual environment. So I had to spend a great deal of time thinking about landscape in a way I hadn't thought about it in, in previous books. And so I felt like I learned a lot as a writer from that. Um, the first challenge was, as I mentioned earlier, kind of coming up with like a, a like a, an itinerary of roughly where, where the expedition um, had been. And then to, in, in creating scenes to try and make them seem real, which was a challenge because landscape is not static. So the way Florida looked like in 1528 is not how Florida looks like today. And I don't mean because of modern buildings or anything like that. I mean, even in terms of the plants, the trees, the fauna, the flora that existed in Florida in 1528 is not the one that exists today. So it would, it would have done me little good to visit Florida for the landscape, although I did, <laughs> but it wasn't really, you know, like I had to be very careful. I can't put, you know, a citrus tree, for example, because citrus was brought by the Spaniards and planted in, in, in Florida. And, um, so I just had to be very careful. Now there's, there are certain sources like this Sigley's book of birds and, uh, the other one also for plants that can basically you can look up all kinds of plants in it and you can find out which are native to America and which are imported. I mean, native to a particular state in which are imported. So for each section of the book, I had to make sure that 
that I use the right, you know, trees and plants and birds and all of that. Uh, and oftentimes it was not something that I could research in advance. It wasn't until I was in the middle of a scene that I would be like, oh, well, you know, Dorantes is leaning against the tree. Well, what kind of trees there, you know, can I use if it's Texas in 1536? Then I have to go back to my database and look at that. And, um, yeah. So, so it did require some research, but, uh, but it's one of the beautiful things about writing a novel is that the information is imparted through character observation and through action. So it's not all at the same time. So you can, you know, you only need, you know, a detail here, a detail there, and then another detail in the next paragraph. So it just has to be deployed very judiciously. You don't have to like put a treatise, you know, you don't have to put three paragraphs about what the landscape looked like in Florida. It, it just is how it, it really has to do with how the detail is, is deployed where it's needed uh, rather than just like having, you know, three or four paragraphs about landscape in Florida, for example. How, how was it to write about this, this, I mean, knowing what we now know, you know, happens over the next mm-hmm. couple centuries mm-hmm. from the perspective of the, of that third party, you know, specifically mm-hmm. addressing like this major historical mm-hmm. um, kind of tragedy that, that yeah. occurs because of this yeah. Um, conquest. Yeah, it, it's really, it, it was really interesting because the book in a way really gives you a glimpse of the impending genocide against um indigenous people so one of the things that happens when when um this is about i would say about halfway through cabeza de vaca's book where he talks about um the expedition having realized that there's no gold having realized that they're you know they're all lost they decide to build rafts and they decide to try and you know try and find their ships so their ships so they get on rafts they you know get you know, obviously that doesn't work out, you know, some of them drown and all of that. So eventually they land and basically they land on an island and historians think that it's Galveston Island in Texas. And when they land there, there are two tribes, two indigenous tribes on that island. And by the time that they leave, by the time the survivors leave, which is less, just a, they only spend a few months there, pretty much they've decimated the, the 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 native the two tribes the Kapukes and the Hans they've decimated them because they brought with them um, typhus uh, or cholera depending on on, on what you believe uh, basically diseases brought by lack of hygiene and uh, they bring them the the you know the, those tribes don't have any immunity and you know it's just they, basically everybody dies so it's it's in that sense it's really almost eerie to read this book because it's set, you know, I mean, to read Capizada Vaca's book because it's set even before the United States is founded. And so to see that this, this is already happening where the conquerors arrive and they bring with them disease. In some instances, they kill natives unintentionally through diseases. And in others, they kill them obviously intentionally uh, using, you know, horses and, and sort of like the more advanced uh, weaponry that they have. Um, so when I was working on the book, one of the challenges that I faced was this knowledge that Cabeza de Vaca's uh, perspective was the perspective, again, of a 16th century Spanish nobleman. And so it is the perspective of a man who has 
there's no doubt in his mind about his superiority, whether it's, you know, technological or cultural or whatever, religious. Uh, and so that is a fatal flaw, obviously, since all of them end up dying. Um, but, but it also for me, as I was reading his book, I kind of had like this sort of alarm bells whenever he would describe indigenous people, because I knew that, again, you have to remember what agenda he had, and you have to remember that this is his perspective, so you're not getting the whole story about these tribes. And so in researching the book, wherever he mentioned a tribe by name, or if we had, like, if I had something that I could go by, I would then go and try and find to see if that tribe is still in existence. Now, most of them obviously are not in existence, the vast majority, but there are a couple that still exist. And so, you know, I, I was able to go and visit like their, their websites, like the, the tribe and their tribe's own history, own creation myths and things like that. Um, just to sort of educate myself about how they, they, their own history where possible. Like, for example, when he gets to Texas, there's one tribe, the Karankawa that he, um, that they, they, they come into contact with. And there are still some fragments of, of the Karankawa's native language that a friar, a Spanish friar had taken down and saved in a book. So I had access to that. So I could use that to kind of, um, uh, yeah. use that for like certain, you know, certain bits of dialogue, things like that. So, you know, where I could find information, I used it, but it was, very often impossible to find that information, absolutely impossible. And so then uh, for those places where I didn't have any information, I obviously had to use my imagination. Um, but but it is it's it's a very delicate subject because you're writing about a like this is a book that seeks to undo the erasure uh, that that Mustafa slash Isabaniko was subjected to while at the same time being aware that there was a significant erasure of indigenous history and indigenous peoples in Cabeza de Vaca's book and possibly also in mine. So you have a line at the end of the book, um, towards the end of the book, uh, I, I think it's where Mustafa says it. Um, he says, I did not make the news. I merely tell it. <laughs> and And this is kind of a, a recurring theme. It's sort of like, the notary, the the recorder, right. rather right. than the storyteller. Right. Um, and I think it's it's. I mean, it it just kind of occurred to me as we've been talking, um, how much you yourself are are perhaps working with these categories of recording what mm-hmm. what happened versus mm-hmm. telling the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and and notaries obviously pop up throughout the book. There's a notary, mm-hmm. you know, his, he comes from a family of notaries yep. Yep. and he's uh, there's a notary on the, on the expedition, if I'm yep. not mistaken as well. Yep. Um, That's what gave me the idea. It's because the, the, the expedition had a notary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess if you could just talk about what you see is the, the difference. Um, and I mean, can we, can can we have a real notary? I mean, I think part of the reason why notaries pop up throughout the Morse account is that I think at heart it's a it's a book about storytelling and specifically about historical storytelling. And one of the things that that really um, that I feel that I learned from writing that novel 
is how much of history is an argument, right? And it's an argument that you have to revisit and revisit and revisit because it matters so much to our notion of who we are as a people, to our identities, right? Um, and the sort of the, where the narrative is driving. And since this is a narrative that drives towards you know, this, this search for, for, for freedom, it seemed to me that that would be a much better ending <laughs> than what Marco Denisa provided for me. So that was the one place I feel like where I took the biggest liberty with what came before. I mean, I guess I would say that if here's a person who's survived for 10 years, <laughs> um, one of only four people, you know, yeah. arguably yeah. among the lowest on the totem pole yeah. um, within yeah, the expedition. Yeah. And so it's, it seems like he probably developed some skills that would yeah. have been, um, <laughs> exactly. made him pretty uh, adaptable and, yeah. and, and slippery uh, when, when need be. Really interesting. Yeah. Um, I want to close with a question, um, just sort of a broad question. I mean, this is a, a, po- a podcast series about Moroccan U.S. relations over, mm-hmm. you know, a, a long period of time. Mm-hmm. In, in what sense, I mean, given that Estebanico Mustafa's um, time in the Americas came way before uh, the concept of the United States mm-hmm. had ever been, um, well, anything. Yeah. Um, but in, in what sense is, is this or could we talk about this or think about this as a as a Moroccan American experience or a Moroccan American story? I mean, I think that that's definitely something that that is worth exploring. I think because this is a, a Moroccan man in the Americas, and if that's not a Moroccan American story, I don't know what is. Especially because there is something that strikes me as completely modern about him, and also, frankly, uniquely American about him. I have always thought of the United States as a place of second chances. Like only in this country do people reinvent themselves, it seems to me, in such radical ways. Um, you know, and I live in California, right? <laughs> it's the land of golden dreams. I mean, this is a place where people come to, to refashion themselves and, um, you know, it, when I keep thinking about when you when you get sworn, well not you but when you get sworn in the generic you when you get sworn in as a citizen you get the chance to pick a new name I mean there's something uniquely American about re like this this idea of reinvention and he this character this incredible historical figure managed to survive through reinvention. So he, you know, whether, whether he, we don't know exactly how he ended up uh, enslaved, but he managed to find a way to survive, um, almost entirely through, you know, by his wits and, and through reinvention, through being able to adapt to his, you know, in Spain and to being able to adapt once he landed in, in America. And then once he was brought to Mexico, once he was brought again to North America, you know, so he, throughout his life, he's been able to adapt and to, to sort of adapt his sense of self, shift his sense of self, reinvent, if you will. And that strikes me as, as very, um, very American, very Moroccan American even. Thanks for listening to Moroccan American. 
This podcast was recorded and produced by Graham Cornwell, that's me, and Amanda Brockler. The podcast intro and outro music is Coast Highway by A.A. Alto. Moroccan American is part of the Moroccan American Studies Initiative. Thanks to the Institute for Middle East Studies at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. And finally, a big thank you to the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies and the U.S. Embassy at Rabat, whose support makes this project possible. Of course, the words and ideas expressed in this podcast series do not represent either of our sponsors. <laughs>